0: My name is Christine Hollendonner and I'm the Administrator for Alumni Education at the Alumni Council. Andrew Gosen is the Associate Director of Alumni Education. Andrew, would you just stand and let everybody see you? And Margaret Miller, who is the Director of the Alumni Council. please. <laughs> The studies program was the brainchild of the class of 46. They ran it for quite a long time and then passed it off to the class of 49 for a short time and then we were lucky enough to have it come to the Alumni Council. Um, I'd like to introduce you to our faculty leader. I'm always overwhelmed over the fact that I get to introduce scholars that are known all over the world. It is just a thrill and a privilege. So we have the Lawrence S. Rockefeller Professor of Public and International Affairs and the Director in Law and Public Affairs and a really great guy Christopher Eisgruber.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to see you all here. I've been looking forward to this uh, weekend for some time. I think we'll have a, a terrific set of lectures and uh, discussions. I know I've been following the uh, email discussions that many of you have been involved in uh, with uh, great interest and they've been extremely uh, lively. Uh, I already got into a rip-roaring argument with uh, a couple of people over lunch, uh, so I expect that the lively discussion will continue throughout the uh, day and it should be uh, terrific. I'm going to introduce our principal speaker in a moment, uh, but before I do, uh, let me introduce uh, three of the preceptors who, along with our speaker and myself, will be handling uh, precepts after this. Uh, lecture. All three of them are over here. Uh, the first of them is someone uh, you know electronically, uh, but can now put a face on, uh, Mariah Zeisberg, uh, a graduate student in the Politics Department, who has just done a terrific job, I think, with our electronic precept. Uh, set us up wonderfully for today. Uh, next to her are two other graduate students also in the Politics Department, uh, Tom Clark and Justin Crow. Now, uh, since, uh, Christine Holland-Honor did a great job uh, I- introducing various other people, but I want to take a moment just to acknowledge uh, her. She's going to be doing great things all weekend long, but those of you who have been back before know that she really makes these alumni study sessions uh, uh, work. We're tremendously in her uh, debt for uh, setting things up and for all the hard work that she does, and I think we should give her a round of applause. Thank you. I'm really delighted to be able to introduce our first uh, speaker uh, for this afternoon. Uh, he is Professor Ken Kirsch, who is uh, an assistant professor uh, in the Department of uh, Politics. Uh, he is a dynamic uh, teacher and a wide-ranging scholar who, in a short period of time, has already made a considerable mark with uh, his writing. He is the author of a book entitled Freedom of Speech, Rights and Liberty under the Law, and uh, two more that are uh, coming out next year. Constructing Civil Liberties: Discontinuities in the Development of American Constitutional Law, uh, and another co-authored with uh, Professor Ronald Kahn, entitled The Supreme Court and American Political Development. He has both a Ph.D. in Political Science from Cornell University uh, and a law degree from uh, Northwestern University. So it's. Uh, a, a great pleasure to be able to introduce uh, Professor Ken Kirsch, who will be lecturing to us today on the topic, Negotiating Racial Equality After the New Deal, A Developmental Perspective on Blacks and Labor. Ken. Uh, it is a
2: pleasure to be here with such a distinguished audience uh, and I wanted to thank Chris especially uh, for inviting me uh, to this. Um, Chris is uh, is the head of the program in law and public affairs here and for those of us who are interested in law it has really been a shot of energy into the entire Princeton community uh, bringing all sorts of legal scholars uh, to Princeton who might otherwise uh, stick close to the law schools and the cross-pollinization, uh, the intellectual cross-pollinization of the Law and Public Affairs program uh, has been extremely helpful in my work and it's a great program and um, uh, I'm delighted uh, to be affiliated with that uh, as well as uh, today's uh, lecture. Is this loud enough?
1: I'm not you up on the
2: mic. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Um, well, uh, I don't want to put a damper on these uh, vigorous discussions that are taking place uh, already over lunch uh, and perhaps over uh, dinner, um, but my focus uh, is a little bit uh, different, perhaps, uh, than a standard uh, focus of a law professor in that I'm not going to talk mainly about equality in a normative sense. I'm not going to talk about what I think uh, the court should say in various cases, uh, and what, it, what is good, what is the proper path of law. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you are interested in that, and I'm happy to talk about that. Um, but my talk is mainly historical and developmental, which means that I'm interested in looking at what the court has done with equality, just observing and interpreting uh, what it has done. Uh, and I think uh, this in itself uh, is quite interesting. Um, of course I have normative views on this and they will be somewhat evident uh, in my talk uh, today uh, but they are not the main focus uh, of my uh, my talk. Um, my topic is the interaction of labor rights uh, and civil rights over the course of the 20th century so I'm taking a very long uh, uh, view of this uh, but actually my topic is uh, somewhat broader, and that that topic is the stories we tell about the path of civil rights uh, over the course of the 20th uh, century. Uh, and I ask what those stories uh, tell us uh, about modern post-New Deal constitutionalism. And my plan today is to sort of uh, break this up, uh, this lecture, into two very broad uh, parts. Uh, the first part is I want to talk about the stories of modern constitutionalism uh, since the New Deal generally. right? What, what do we believe about our past? What do we say about our constitutional past? Uh, and in light of that, how do we situate ourselves uh, in the present? Uh, and then second, I want to look specifically at labor rights uh, and civil rights, and I'm going to argue... Uh, that if we look carefully at what the Supreme Court has done uh, in first taking up the rights of labor closer to the New Deal, and then later in the 40s and 50s taking up civil rights, uh, if we look at that sequence of concern for these two broad areas of rights, um, uh, it will lead us to see, I will argue, uh, that these stories miss something about what has been done by the Court. Uh, constitutionally in the 20th century. Uh, so let me bracket the labor rights and civil rights for a minute uh, and talk to you about what I would call, borrowing a, a term from Roger Smith of the University of Pennsylvania, the constitutive story of modern American uh, constitutionalism. Okay? And I'll begin with an anecdote uh, that um, ends up right in this room uh, at uh, 4 p.m., uh, on September 11th, 2001, uh, uh, and uh, um, obviously that was a that was a very long uh, day, uh, and it was early in my time at Princeton. In fact, I had just arrived um, three weeks before uh, before September 11th, uh, and um, it was a long day that began at home watching television and then watching. Uh, uh, the events in New York City and Washington in the Frist Center uh, with students in complete silence uh, and then uh, after that at noon um, a really remarkable experience I had um, that I've always wanted an opportunity to talk about I'll talk about it briefly now but, uh, <laughs> I, I've never really had the opportunity before um, when uh, there was a memorial service over in the, in the chapel um, and I got there about 20 minutes early and sat in one of the front rows in silence um, and uh, just had my eyes closed and was, uh, was at the front of the chapel. And uh, about 15 minutes later, the time for the service uh, had uh, come. Uh, and I thought, well, everyone must still be in the Frist Center because you could have heard a pin drop in there. I didn't hear anyone enter at all. It was dead silent. Um, uh, but then I opened my eyes and looked back and the entire chapel was full, all the way to the back. And uh, it, was, it was really uh, an amazing uh, experience uh, to, to see that and, and very moving. Um, later in the day, there was a panel, uh, the silence was broken by 4 p.m. and there was a panel that took place in this room um, in the Wilson School, uh, about uh, what had happened that day with various experts, the, the dean of the Wilson School who was the previous dean, uh, not the current dean, uh, some experts in international relations, um, things like that. Uh, and then uh, there was a moment, it, the, the proceedings went as follows. Uh, there was a moment of silence uh, and then uh, immediately uh, there was a condemnation of the Japanese internment uh, and uh, then a discussion about the importance of civil liberties. Okay. Um, now we might expect this with people who are experts on civil liberties, but it happens that the previous Dean was an economist uh, and the person who spoke about civil liberties was an international relations scholar. Um, so when I talk about the stories we sort of tell, uh, I'm treating them in a way as members of the general public, like, like, like anyone else. and. Um, it was very interesting to me, um, you know, I was angry about this and everything, uh, but, uh, but it was, aside from that, just as an observation, uh, it is very interesting, I think, uh, that the very first issue, the framework through which educated people uh, think about this is through the framework of civil liberties and civil rights. I, and I i don't mean afterwards, reflecting on it. I mean immediately, that very day. Uh, and that tells you, to me, uh, that tells us something very important about how we see ourselves, or how a significant portion of us uh, see ourselves as a nation. Uh, and uh, it seems to me that uh, we see ourselves uh, uh, if our first reaction is not, you know, either protection or revenge or security, uh, but the first reaction uh, is protection of civil rights and civil liberties, it seems that um, the, the civil rights and civil liberties progress stands at the center of who we see ourselves as, uh, as a people. Um, we are a people who had a civil rights and civil liberties revolution. That is who many people uh, think we are. There are other ways to think about the country, right? Uh, but Korematsu and then issues of free speech uh, and immigration uh, were the prism through which we see this. This is this seems to be a form of modern American nationalism, and it's anchored in a what I would call a Whiggish narrative of progress that took place over the course of the 20th century. Um, and uh, it is a, it, it's a very interesting uh, thing uh, to observe. Now, I say it's interesting. Maybe, maybe you would take this for granted, that that would be the first reaction uh, someone would have to this. Um, I want to contrast this constitutional vision. Right, This is a constitutional vision, this vision of civil rights and civil liberties progress. I want to contrast this with the constitutional vision of the 18th and 19th century in the United States. I, I will argue that this is different. This is something new, right? And this is something that mostly predates, uh, uh, post the New Deal, okay? It is not, and I'm not arguing uh, that people were not concerned with rights and liberties before. That is consistent um, uh, throughout the American tradition. Indeed, it's famously consistent uh, that people are concerned with, especially with liberty, um, uh, but uh, also with, uh, with uh, civil rights. In the 18th and 19th century, people thought about the Constitution in a different way, broadly speaking. Uh, they did not think of it in a progressive way. Uh, they thought of it in a Newtonian way. Uh, and when I say Newtonian, I mean, uh, as someone has called it, as a machine that goes of itself, uh, as a system of balance, balances and tensions uh, this is most clear in the Federalist Papers, uh, particularly in, in 10 and 51, and really Federalist uh, 51, where Madison sort of explains the Constitution as a system for managing faction and for managing interests, as a mechanism for taming self-interest and channeling it into the broader public good. Right? And the components of this machine uh, are familiar uh, to you. Um, extend the sphere of government so you bring in more factions and they can sort of fight it out in the in the uh, public sphere. It used to be that people conceived of democracies as having to be rather small, uh, and um, or republics, as as Madison called it. Extend the sphere. Uh, have a national government and state governments. Right, different levels of government, uh, separation of powers within the national government and the filter of representation. In other words, the best people uh, will, will weed out the, more, um, uh, the, the initiatives that aren't in the broader public good, or at least they're more likely to uh, than, than the man in the street. Uh, and as Madison put this, uh, by so constru- contriving the interior structure of the government as that its several constituent parts may, by their mutual relations, be the means of keeping each other in their proper places. So this is a mechanical vision. Right? This is quite uh, uh, different uh, from what I'm talking about, uh, a, a, what I call a progressive narrative. And to the extent that constitutional change takes place within this Newtonian system, and it does, right? it is glacial evolution. It is slow. It is like the common law. Right? Uh, it is not taken by leaps and bounds of progress led by sort of social movements and visions of the good society. It's tinkering, you know? It's tinkering with the, with the uh, uh, gears. Um, this changes. Right? This, this changes. Uh, this Newtonian form of constitutionalism is disturbed uh, by two forces, I will argue. Um, and this isn't really our topic about how it, how it uh, changed, uh, so I'll just sort of list them to you just to um, uh, 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 say something about that. Um, and the two forces, as I see it, are first, abolitionism and the Civil War. This brings in a new dynamic into this uh, machine, and it is a notion of moral directionality. In other words, it brings a moral vision to the heart of American constitutionalism, uh, and it perceives the American nation as advancing towards this cause, this moral good, right? It's true that the court itself does not absorb that fully and in fact that doesn't surface as central to the tradition until later, but what is significant is that people start making those arguments in public life, right? And they make them uh, uh, in the court as well. Uh, they don't win until later. Right? And the other um, is uh, the rise of evolutionary concepts of society itself, like Darwinism. We tend to think of Darwinism as being a right-wing thing, right? Uh, but there were left Darwinisms and right Darwinisms. Uh, and uh, the broad point about uh, Darwin is that... Um, you know, it imported this idea of evolution. And people took up this idea of evolution uh, and read it into theories of the, the nation and the state, and people began to think differently. And this came in also through German thought, you know, Hegel and Marx and uh, things like that. Um, so there, there grows up this notion that the Constitution itself is evolving and living, right? And if you add to this the moral dimension brought in by abolitionism, you eventually uh, get to a notion that the Constitution is not just this sort of machine going round and round, and it's a perfectly balanced and well-oiled, uh, that's not good enough anymore, right? Um, uh, there is now a notion of a uh, progressive uh, Constitution, okay? So, um, now I wanna say a little bit about the 20th century which is uh, the focus of the blacks and labor uh, part of this discussion. Um, we have the replacement of the Newtonian model with a progressive constitution. Uh, and let me refine this and stylize it a little bit and call it a barrier and breakthrough model. Right? What happens in the 20th century, uh, and I'd be interested to hear especially in precept, uh, the extent to which people are are trained what people have been taught about the New Deal in constitutional history, and they can correct me uh, if I'm wrong about uh, uh, this. But my own experience in law school uh, is that the New Deal is presented in a barrier and breakthrough sort of way. That uh, this is very familiar; it should be very familiar. There's an old order that's formalistic and mechanical, uh, and where judicial power is is enforcing these rigid. Uh, approaches the constitutional law, uh, then there is a social crisis, um, and uh, the old order focused on rigid separation of powers and federalism and property rights, then there was a, 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 a battle between FDR and the courts, right? there was the switch in time that saves nine, uh, and ultimately there was the breakthrough to a modern constitutionalism, uh, which is living, and we get the modern welfare state, right? Uh, it used to be that um, the court was, it didn't strike down every aspect of the uh, modern welfare state or attempts at it, but it was very suspicious of laws regulating minimum wage and maximum hours and, and uh, things like that. Um, and we get the Caroline Products footnote. Uh, the Caroline Products footnote is this famous footnote uh, from a 1938 case which says we're going to basically allow the federal government to do almost whatever it wants in the economic regulation sphere, uh, but we're going to be really skeptical about infringements on basic rights, okay? So uh, what happens is that footnote, many have said, serves as a game plan for the modern Supreme Court. Uh, and once this barrier is down, you have this ever upward trajectory until, of course, William Rehnquist. Right? Uh, I used to be able to say that, and in fact, in my in my book, I I sort of stop it somewhere in the Burger Court because there's a there's a general consensus among scholars. There's a debate among scholars. Everyone agrees what Warren was, right? Uh, and then there's a little bit of debate about whether Berger was conservative and, or whether he just kept up the revolution of the, uh, of the uh, Warren court. Um, and uh, you know the answer is kind of one and kind of the other, right? In some areas uh, they pulled back a little, but they really didn't dismantle any aspects of that. Um, but then you hit the Rehnquist court Right, and everyone agrees. You know, uh, it's just the worst thing they've ever seen in their lives. And when I say everyone, I mean law professors, basically, uh, and and a lot of people uh, out there in the broader uh, polity. Uh, uh, but uh, anyway, so you get this ever upward trajectory until sometime in the 70s. You know. Um, until brandquist is appointed uh, uh, Chief Justice. Uh, and this is called the Civil Rights and Civil Liberties Revolution. And I think you know the greatest hits of this uh, sort of thing, right? You start, you get Brown versus Board of Education, right, desegregating the schools. Uh, Times v. Sullivan, uh, sort of extending the, um, or opening up um, libel law, giving free press, a, 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 giving the press a broader reign. Gideon uh, v. Wainwright, right? They have a lot of these uh, cases, incidentally, are the focus of made-for-TV movies, you know? Uh, they're very heroic, you know? Uh, it's, uh, it's uh, I don't know about Times v. Sullivan, certainly Gideon uh, is, uh, certainly Roe v. Wade, but let's say we have Gideon, we have Map v. Ohio, which involves the exclusionary rule, right? If you seize the evidence illegally, it has to be uh, thrown out. Brandenburg v. Ohio, in which uh, the Klan has brought free speech rights um, to burn crosses, and that's sort of a high watermark uh, of free speech. And then you have the church-state separation cases involving school prayer um, and Bible reading. Uh, and then you have Griswold on birth control and Roe v. Wade. Okay? So when I say ever upward, I think um, a lot of you will be familiar with these opinions and you will see what I mean by that, right? It's a, it's a greatest hits towards, uh, <laughs> towards uh, civil liberties progress. Um, and this, to, to bring it back to September 11th, um, I think this is the story, this is the constitutive story I'm talking about, right? This is what's really powerful. Um, people see this as and, in many respects, it is a great moral, a great moral achievement, a great progressive achievement uh, and uh, given that that 's the way they see American history in the 20th century uh, when, bil- when planes fly into buildings, you know, and the buildings come down, the first people think is, "Oh my god let 's not lose this history you know um, it 's it's a very powerful uh, history and it, it, says it's a, it has a lot to do with what we think of ourselves uh, as a nation. It's taught in schools, um, and uh, I'm not just, I guess I'm not really just talking about law professors. I mean, I'm talking about your basic high school uh, textbooks, which is probably even, even more important uh, in, in some ways. Um, this, is, this is our sense of our nation. Uh, and, okay, so now the question is, what's so bad about that? right uh, what is my beef with that right uh, this is this is taking on something that really should not be uh, uh, mucked around with uh, it's 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 led to a lot of progress in a lot of ways and uh, why am I interested in in, in uh, uh, challenging it why am I looking at um, uh, blacks and labor with an eye towards challenging it um, well I'm going to look at the relationship between blacks and labor with an eye towards challenging this story, um, because uh, I think that, not that this story is wrong, right? But I think by viewing this as a triumph, right? And we can look at it differently, say the rights of labor, the rights of blacks, then the rights of women, then the rights of gays, right? A gradual expansion, to use the term for the first time, equality, right? A gradual incorporation of new groups into uh, the the family of groups that are treated uh, that are given civil rights that are treated uh, equally. Uh, it is not that, in some sense, this isn't true, right? That that we didn't have labor rights and then civil rights and then women's rights and, and now beginning to have uh, gay rights in the in the court. Uh, it's not that it isn't true, but the problem, as I see it, is that Breakthroughs become new barriers. They are not just breakthroughs. Uh, and as, at the very end of my talk, I will talk about the implications of that, right? This idea that we wipe away the, 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 uh, uh, the muck, and then we have a free open field, um, uh, to the extent that that is a strong part of the story it leads us to misperceive what's actually happening with contemporary rights uh, and, and uh, liberties. And um, so uh, I think that these Whiggish narratives, to, to, to talk about them a little bit, um, they tend to pit the forces, as Whiggish narratives do, of goodness and light against darkness and reaction, uh, as progressives against conservatives, uh, and uh, I think that uh, one day's progress often becomes the next day's conservatism. Right? Once you win something, you have a hold on power and you are now the establishment. Uh, and I think we miss that if we're too much in the sway of this particular uh, story. Um, and I'm going to look at the ways in which labor rights, right? a good progressive cause indeed labor rights, unions, right, is the founding point of modern liberalism. Collective bargaining in the New Deal is the beginning uh, of, of, of modern liberalism. Um, and uh, what happens is that instead of just incorporating blacks into uh, what the group's having rights, it turns out uh, that giving rights to labor was a real, real bad thing for black people at that time, right? uh, and um, the Supreme Court uh, plays an important part in negotiating, in, mo- in helping us negotiate the transition from a labor rights regime which is progressive for the working class, right? uh, but really hostile uh, to civil rights, um, and then the next imperative amongst modern liberalism, which is civil rights. And the Supreme Court plays a role in negotiating the transition uh, from one uh, to the next. Um, so let me just uh, say a little bit about the, the labor, uh, the, the constitutional revolution concerning labor. This is the New Deal. right? This is the heart of the New Deal uh, uh, generally and for the purposes of, of, of this uh, lecture. Um, the first thing I want to say about labor rights uh, was that labor rights were an assault on individual rights. Okay, And one of the interesting things about this constitutional story uh, that is told uh, is that people deny that to this day, right? Uh, but if you look at progressives and liberals, actually what they wrote in the 1930s, they said this. Uh, and they said, uh, you know, this is an assault on individual rights, but it's absolutely necessary given the needs of the time. Right? They said it openly. It's the law professors afterwards that don't want to say that, right? Uh, because you don't, it doesn't help you to institutionalize your achievements by constantly bringing that up, right? Uh, so, um, and I'll just give you, I'll give you two brief cases that are an example, uh, some of my uh, favorite cases, and they're, they're, they're obscure cases. Um, they're obscure partly because they don't really announce any new doctrine, uh, they just sort of ratify what's going on so, so people don't really look at them. Um, these are cases involving the Norris LaGuardia Act, um, Send the Tile Layers Union and Lauf v. Schinner. The Norris LaGuardia Act is an act from 1932 that uh, basically got the courts out of the labor injunction business, right? Uh, courts were constantly intervening in strikes and boycotts and sort of frustrating the goals of the, uh, of the uh, uh, labor movement. Uh, and Congress eventually passed the Norris LaGuardia Act, which said that the courts basically have to stay out of these labor disputes, okay? So it removed um, this barrier. Um, the Sen case uh, is, a, is a very interesting case from the 1930s involving this guy, Paul Sen, who had a, a tile-laying business in Milwaukee. And he owned the business but and he had one or two employees, depending on how busy he was, okay? This is, this is, remember, during the Great Depression, right? And he was, needless to say, having a hard time staying in business. He had, he had a family, um, and so it was a very small business. Um, so the local union, the Tile Layers Union, came to him and said, we want you to unionize or we're going to strike and picket your premises until you're out of business. Right? Now, I guess the easy thing I could say uh, is that, you know, it could be like the Cato Institute. I could say, he refused. You know, he has the individual right uh, to, do, to uh, not join a union, and by, by gosh, he's not going to give in. Uh, but actually, this case is more interesting than that, because he did not say, I don't want to be a, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm against unions. He said, fine. Right? I'm fine with unions, I'd be happy to unionize. Um, but what he said is, I need to continue to work with my hands and we'll both be in the union, me and my one other employee. Uh, and the union said, no. You have to stop doing the actual work. Right? Why did he have to stop doing the actual work? Because you are now management. Right? We need, in this order there is a rigid separation between labor and management right uh, and everything within the system uh, that was being set up was premised on this distinction which is based on having two separate classes and he said i'll do whatever you want but i, I actually can't afford to stop working because then i'll i'll go out of business right and besides it's the only thing i've ever done right um, and you know, he sought an injunction against this picketing saying he was unfair to labor. And I won't go into the whole history of picketing law, which is actually relevant uh, uh, to this. Um, but, um, you know, normally you are not allowed to picket for an unlawful purpose. And uh, this, this uh, would seem to fall into that uh, category to, to sort of force him from his, from his uh, job. Uh, and, in fact, the court said, you know, look, right, they basically said you can talk about your individual right to labor, but we used to do that in the old days. You know, now we have to separate labor from management. That's part of the labor laws. You're on the wrong side, and uh, and uh, they they allowed uh, the strike. Um, the second case uh, involves um, similar thing. Uh, involves a labor union uh, in. I think it's also in Wisconsin. Uh, the late Wisconsin is a real hotbed of, of labor uh, uh, stuff. Uh, is anyone from Wisconsin here? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, well, Wisconsin was a very progressive state. You know, And the University of Wisconsin played a major uh, role in, in, in this. Um, and it turns out, actually, the, the, the combination there was that the Seventh Circuit, the, the courts in that area were really conservative. Uh, at this time and they clashed with the, what the state of Wisconsin was trying to do. The Supreme Court was constantly having to step in and, and sort of set things right. Um, but this involved the case of pickets of a grocery store in which the, um, the uh, people had their own employees association. The employees, they didn't want a union. Uh, the union went to the owner of these grocery stores and said, will you, will you it didn't just say, will you let them join a union. Uh, what he said to them is, you either go to them and tell them they join the union or they're fired, right, uh, which is against the labor laws, you know, uh, but, uh, and they said, we'll picket you if you don't do that, and uh, then he sought an injunction, the court denied it, and they said, look, you know, we live in a new day. Right, it's everyone, it's, it's labor against management and uh, uh, they just sort of rolled over, the court rolled over and played uh, dead and, and bad. Um, uh, so, my point about this, right, is that, not just that it was an infringement on individual rights, uh, which I think it was, but that the court was willing to go to pretty stringent, pretty, pretty far, right, to make sure that this order got off on the right footing. Right? Uh, they wanted a rigid separation and they, they were willing to tolerate situations in which people were coerced into joining unions, even though technically uh, that, that is not acceptable. Um, so they cared a lot about the new order. Right? The second thing I want to say about this uh, is that this, this uh, announcement of the new order was joined to a very strong argument about the meaning of democracy a very strong normative argument about the importance of having democracy in industry. Right? And this goes back to the late 19th century, it goes back to people like John Dewey, uh, it's even transnational. Uh, industrial democracy was a, was a rallying cry of the Webbs, the Fabian uh, socialists over in uh, England, associated with the London School of Economics. Uh, and lots of progressives in the United States were talking about what does it mean to have a democracy for labor, right? And there were all sorts of potential ideas tried out. Ultimately, they arrived at this idea of collective bargaining. Now, it's true, there are radicals who would say that that's not, you know, that's not really uh, industrial democracy. But the, the notion was that uh, you would have a union that was certified by the government uh, the employer was not allowed to break that union. They, in fact, they were supposed to, they were required to bargain with that union, and that union operated by majority vote, okay? So there was 30, 40 years of talk about how this was the meaning of democracy. So you have a new system on the one hand, which is a practical system of regulation, and then you have this, this, all this talk that says majoritarian rule in unions is what we mean by democracy. And this really uh, this breakthrough was really important and very deeply consolidated. It was very, um, uh, it was liberating uh, for labor, right? Uh, okay, so, and guess what? The labor problem solved, okay? Strikes go down, you know, you have the modern uh, state in which we have relative labor peace. Um, and at least as far as policymakers are concerned, that's the end of the labor problem. You know, there's Taft-Hartley, there are things that come up afterwards, I don't mean to be, uh, you know, for purposes of this, I don't, I'll be a little schematic about it. Uh, but I think most people agree that as the center of progressive politics, uh, that was largely the beginning of the end for labor. At this very time, civil rights starts becoming a problem. Right? The first civil rights cases start coming uh, to the court, the first brought by the NAACP, that eventually lead to Brown versus Board of Education. Right. Um, this is another thing that you don't often hear about. Right? Uh, a lot of black people were really, really upset about this new order concerning labor. Right? Uh, in fact, uh, the National uh, Recovery Association, the sort of pre- precursor to the National Labor Relations Act, which set up collective bargaining. Uh, it was referred to in the black press as the Negro Removal Act, uh, or Negroes Ruined Again. Right. Uh, and ha- why? Uh, because uh, it imposed a monopoly. It gave labor unions, which were mostly racist, gave them a monopoly on bargaining with the employer. And it said labor unions get to operate by majority rule. So what happened to the black people? They kept them out, they had a vote, and that was that, right? And, 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 and by the way, and their white representative was certified by the government as the official representative of labor, right? So they were extremely uh, unhappy about this. Uh, and in fact, uh, if you go back and read a lot of the um, history by historians associated with the Howard University group, they point out, and they say, Rayford Logan, a, a very famous black historian being the classic example, that, you know, you can look at school segregation, you can look at Jim Crow uh, and all that sort of thing, which is what we tend to look at when we study this, uh, but Rayford Logan says if you want to know what really has affected black people very strongly, it's exclusion from labor unions, right? That is what has held them back most. Uh, and uh, that's also the reason why I like going back and reading what people were saying at the time rather than reading about what people now say about what happened at the time. Um, now, again, this is a little schematic because there are certain uh, black activists uh, like uh, A. Philip Randolph uh, and, and W.E.B. Du Bois who are socialists and they're very into the labor union and eventually that wins. right? Eventually that becomes more prominent. Uh, but early on, there was a significant uh, number of people uh, who are hostile uh, to labor unions. Every victory for labor power uh, is a, a stab at the heart of uh, civil rights. So this is what I mean by a breakthrough becoming a barrier. Right? And, um, and not only that, but you have this strong rhetoric of majoritarian democracy. So everyone has spent 30 years telling you why the majority wins is is the greatest. That's what we mean by freedom in America. That's what we mean by democratic government. Um, so what happens is you start getting cases in the Supreme Court in which uh, uh, black people are uh, trying to get their civil rights and at various points interact and sue labor unions, right? And you have a Supreme Court which is a liberal Supreme Court appointed by Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, and Truman and uh, other people after that. Um, it's a Democratic court for the most part. Um, it's a New Deal court. And what they have to do is deal with this, right? They have two of their, they have one constituency of theirs, uh, labor, which is a core constituency of the Democratic Party, and then they have an emerging constituency, blacks, which are starting to move towards Roosevelt. Um, uh, after the new deal right now again there's argument about how quickly they move towards the democrats uh, but they are definitely moving towards the democrats um, and what the court does is uh, it has to deal with this sequence what does it do about labor rights and civil rights uh, it has a couple of choices right it could say you know what uh, we believe in non-discrimination now right so you know what uh, we talked about majoritarian rule uh, before, we talked about uh, industrial democracy before, but now we see that's all wrong, that uh, majoritarian rule is not democracy, and we repudiate it, and we side for, with civil rights. Okay? Um, they did not want to do that, right? which makes sense. Uh, what they did and what they wanted to do was kind of fudge it. Right? They tried to come up with some justification uh, for reconciling these two uh, uh, groups in a way that doesn't really upset the apple cart, uh, that doesn't choose sides. Uh, and these are the cases that I tend to focus on, this, this, this anguished uh, rooting around for a good solution on the part of the court. Um, and they're very interesting um, uh, uh, cases uh, about this. Um, we start out with a case uh, in which the NAACP and the ACLU uh, argue openly against majority rule in unions. Okay? Uh, ca- classic case coming out of New York involving a discriminatory labor union. Um, there's a lawsuit about that. Uh, and uh, the labor union, interestingly enough, talks about its rights to free association and its property rights. Um, and, uh, uh, and it's, it's, it's liberty of contract which is the old thing that they used to fight against right? but now they were using it to defend this the NAACP and the ACLU uh, argue against majoritarian democracy uh, and the court comes along uh, and says this is 1944 the court says you know what labor unions are state actors um, I guess since a lot of you are lawyers, not all of you are lawyers, uh, I assume there's a high percentage of, of lawyers in the uh, audience. Um, this means that um, if you are a creature, if you are an organization that in some sense is a creature of the state, um, the government can come in and apply 14th Amendment equal protection principles uh, to you because you're a state actor, right? You're not a private entity. And the court says labor unions because we've set up these collective bargaining rules because we sort of certify labor unions the state in a sense created them right and because the state created them the state can apply the state being the government in this case it's actually a, a state the state can apply uh, equal protection standards uh... to the to the labor union the court says yes this makes sense to us right uh... but as soon as it says that they get cold feet Right. Uh, and they get cold feet because that's too aggressive, right? If you say a labor union is the creature of the state, you are giving the lie to this idea that labor unions, it's important that they be powerful and autonomous to govern themselves, right? So they take one stab at it, they have a strong ruling, and then they back off, right? And they don't issue a ruling like that again, right? The next thing uh, they do uh, is they, they get another case involving discrimination against blacks and labor unions, and this time they, they treat it differently. Uh, they don't say you're a state actor. Uh, what they say this time uh, is that, you know, they make an analogy. This is what lawyers love to do, they love to make analogies, uh, and in fact, um, the. Uh, the history of this, and, and a lot of what I write, uh, is not focused so much on the doctrine as on the analogies that people use in the law reviews uh, and in the Supreme Court decisions themselves. So the rhetoric and the, the type of... You can see them taking each of these uh, steps. This time, they don't say the labor union's a state actor. What they say is that the labor union is kind of like a legislature. Right? And what do we expect of legislatures... We expect that they will operate fairly and not prefer one group over another group. And they read into the labor statutes what is called a duty of fair representation. Right? There was no discussion of a duty of fair representation when the labor statutes were passed. There, is no word, there are no words fair representation in these statutes and everybody, even the most sympathetic commentators, agree that the court basically invented this. Right, um, but it was a very clever invention. Right, uh, they said the statute has an implicit duty of of fair representation. Um, there's a concurrence by Justice Murphy, which said, "Oh, come on, you know, let's just use the equal protection clause via the Fifth Amendment, and it's a constitutional issue." It, they were treating it as a statutory interpretation issue, even though there was no provision in the statute to interpret uh, this way. And Justice Murphy said, get off it, you know, uh, use the Constitution, be open about what you're doing, but the court said, no, there's a duty of uh, fair representation. Um, I say this is a very clever uh, move on the part of the court, and I tried to ask myself, you know, just, being in a, just interpreting this, why would they do that, right? Why would they go this way rather than just saying um, the, the Fifth Amendment equal protection? Um, one thing this does, Right? is that it allows them to maintain a rhetorical commitment to labor union autonomy. Right? It can say, we're just integrating you into a norm of governance. We are not enforcing a right, right and penetrating you and saying, you can't act this way because we're the government and we say so. What they say, what they do is impose a norm of fairness. So it's less aggressive, it's less confrontational, right? Uh, so it works in that way, and by the way, uh, for the same reason, it downplays the antagonism between the courts um, and labor unions, right? Which was a major, major bone of contention during the New Deal. Labor was against the courts, right? So this, again, in not saying it's a right, you don't have courts using a rights argument um, against labor unions. That's bad too. So this solution is actually quite uh, creative, uh, a creative solution um, uh, to, that, um, to that problem. Uh, so it moves towards a duty of fair representation. Um, let me just say a little bit about judicial uh, power uh, before um, uh, moving on to the, to the close of this. Um, One of the most interesting things to me about this triumph of uh, labor in the New Deal is um, that, as I mentioned just a second ago, there was a strong anti-judicial rhetoric to the labor rights movement, to the New Deal. Right? The courts were conservative. Right? They were standing in the way. They were using rights aggressively. They were exercising judicial review inappropriately and aggressively, um, and there was an, a strong progressive critique of judicial uh, power. One of the most intriguing aspects of modern constitutionalism, it seems to me, is how quickly that rhetoric disappears. Uh, certainly, certainly, it's very different by the time Brown versus Board of Education comes around. Uh, and today, it's still different, right? I mean, courts are where people go to fight for their rights. Uh, uh, and um, I'm kind of interested in how, how that switched too, and I think it's also evident in these cases involving uh, blacks and labor. Um, the first thing that blacks do, blacks want to leverage this power. right? Uh, they, want to, um, they want to leverage the power that has been gained by organized labor and get the courts out of their way while they're picketing and doing civil rights protests. Okay? Um, so what they do uh, is they get the court to define what they're doing as labor disputes. If they're defined as labor disputes, there can be no injunctions issued, right? Um, and that's also a very interesting move, right? Because we, the Norris LaGuardia Act was to get injunctions out of the way in picketing and strikes. And uh, African Americans say, you know what? Let's, let's have picketing and strikes, which is a tactic they borrow from the labor movement. And if they get those pickets and strikes defined as labor disputes, the courts can't get in the way of that. Uh, and there are a series of cases involving this, which are really not discussed often enough, but are absolutely fascinating cases uh, from the 1930s called the Don't Buy Where You Can't Work campaigns. And uh, these cases involve pickets and strikes by civil rights activists, to get, and this will be familiar to you, right, maybe from Al Sharpton in an earlier period of his life, um, uh, where you have these strikes and pickets against uh, white owners of businesses in black neighborhoods, uh, often Jewish owners of businesses in black neighborhoods, uh, asking them to hire uh, not just more black workers, but a fixed percentage of black workers, right? Uh, and one of the, the intriguing things and this really, I think this is a real interesting precursor to curtain Affirmative Action cases because people there are quotas, right and the pickets and strikes are demanding uh, these, uh, uh, these quotas uh, and the issue is um, you know, pe- the business owners seek an injunction just as in the Sen case and the Lauf case right and uh and uh, the, they say, look, this is for an illegal purpose, this picket. So we should be entitled uh, uh, to an injunction. And by the way, this is in a labor dispute. It's a civil rights dispute. Right? So it's different. Right? Uh, this becomes a very complicated area of law, which I uh, won't go into in too much detail. Um, but one of the most interesting aspects of these cases is that, at first, the injunctions are issued. Because people say, you can't pick it to force someone to racially discriminate in hiring. Right? And so it's an illegal purpose, and you know. And by the way, this isn't a labor dispute. But then the law reviews get involved, right? And you have a lot of, often student comments in the law reviews where people say, well, it may not be actually a labor dispute, but isn't it kind of like a labor dispute? Because you have an oppressed class and they're fighting for their rights just as labor did and black people are a lot like labor and they're using the same tactics as labor. And if you go through the law comments, at first it's very ginger, you know, it, it could be like this, but I wouldn't advocate the result, you know. And then gradually you say, you know, it is like that and I do advocate the result, right. Um, and the justices pick up on this, you know. Uh, they pick up on it, and in fact, um, they begin defining these these civil rights disputes uh, as as labor disputes, uh, which means that they are free from the injunctions for an unlawful purpose, right? And that's that's sort of the beginning uh, of this. Uh, so injunctions are out of the way, uh, but guess what, right? Uh, to to keep with my developmental theme, right? It turns out that. Uh, now they actually want to use injunctions for their own purposes. They want... So, you know, this, this sounds silly, right? It sounds inconsistent. But uh, being sort of a developmental person, I, I don't feel the need to find any particular uh, consistency uh, here. Uh, people are acting strategically, and they're looking at the order. You're lawyers, right? I mean, you, you do what you need to do in the landscape that you have, and, and with, as the problems come up. Um, and what they want, then, are injunctions against um, labor unions that do not proceed according to fair representation, okay? So they want to use the injunction power against uh, discriminating uh, uh, labor unions. Um, and uh, what happens uh, is that, and um, in, in there's one opinion, which is in my paper, which you may have, uh, called uh, Graham, where you get to see Justice Jackson um, work this out, and it's an absolutely fascinating opinion because what he does is redefine labor. And he treats in this case of a suit of civil rights, um, well, people seeking their civil rights against the discriminatory labor union. Justice Jackson says, um, the purpose of the Norris LaGuardia Act is to empower labor is the Graham case. The purpose of the Norris-LaGuardia Act is to empower labor. And look at, at whose labor here. These black uh, workers who want to enter a non-discriminatory union uh, are labor, and um, they are being put down by this other entity. And we will use an injunction because the general rule is you want to use injunctions to empower labor, not to hurt labor. Uh, what's fascinating about this, of course, is that the labor union is not labor. It's the civil rights demonstrators who are labor, the civil rights people asserting their civil rights who are labor. So he, 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 he tilts the definition of who's labor to sort of rebuild the injunctive power uh, for, for uh, civil rights. Now, as it turns out, um, uh, th- this, this is what happens, and then, by the way, you know, everything sort of changes in the 1960s. There's a settlement arrived at um, And what happens is that you get the Civil Rights Act of 1964, you get the Voting Rights Act of 1965, you get, to, to cite a broad cultural trend, you get a lot of people beginning to think of labor as just another big power interest group, right? So their, their street credibility is kind of going down, uh, by this point um, uh, and the NLRB begins defining uh, discrimination as an unfair labor practice right and what happens is um, that ultimately uh, this problem sort of fades you have civil rights laws applying to um, uh, to to uh, labor unions uh, and and uh, uh, things uh, move on uh, from from there um, so uh, it's just an interesting study in the dynamics of how these, these two reforms are, are negotiated uh, uh, sequentially. Um, so there's this, uh, so let me just say to, um, uh, to uh, summarize a bit and then say a few words about the implications of this. This is a broad conceptual point about constitutional development, right? Uh, um, and by the way, uh, labor unions were never, they were never, uh, they never had these equal protection clause uh, applied to them in this way, because this sort of, you know, it worked out that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 took care of this, right? It, it made labor unions non-discriminatory. The NLRB uh, banned discrimination in labor unions, but they never got the constitutional solution uh, that might have been applied to any other entity Right? public parks, swimming pools, you know, every, everybody else got that, but labor got, got it through a different path. Uh, and the reason it did, again, I'm arguing, is because it plays a real important role as the foundation for the New Deal. Right? And they don't want to penetrate it in the same way that they would penetrate, say, racist Southern schools. So it's a very interesting ideological solution ultimately arriving at the same endpoint. Right? Uh, but through different means for ideologically important reasons. Um, so to talk to to summarize the Whig story, right? You have a barrier in breakthrough. You have the rights of labor, then the rights of blacks, then the rights of women, uh, and it's an expanding notion of uh, equality. Um, uh, you know, the court wants to hold up this notion that there was a, gra- a gradual incorporation of. Uh, uh, of new groups into the uh, prevailing uh, regime, um, but it does it in this odd way, uh, and we get there through, through odd means. Okay, why is this important uh, conceptually? Uh, and I'll just uh, venture a few thoughts on this, um, uh, and this will be maybe more controversial, I don't know. Um, uh, but why is a developmental approach Sensitive to this ideological process uh, important right, uh, but through different means for ideologically important reasons, um, so to talk to, to summarize the Whig story right you have a barrier in breakthrough you have the rights of labor, then the rights of blacks, then the rights of women, uh, and it 's an expanding notion of uh, equality um, uh, you know, the court wants to hold up this notion that there was a, gra- a gradual incorporation of, uh, uh, of new groups into the uh, prevailing uh, regime, um, but it does it in this odd way, uh, and we get there through, through odd means. Okay, why is this important uh, conceptually? Uh, and I'll just uh, venture a few thoughts on this, um, uh, and this will be maybe more controversial, I don't know. Um, uh, but why is a developmental approach sensitive to this ideological process uh, important? Right? Uh, I think it's important because these Whiggish narratives involving the triumph of equality, of uh, barriers and breakthroughs, um, justified by appeals to democracy and things like that, um, they, they obscure the new barriers that are created, uh, and uh, give me, I'll, I'll give you some additional examples of how this operates in completely different areas uh, of the, the law. Um, let me say that this, this, this barrier and breakthrough model, I think, is particularly debilitating when it comes to civil rights and civil liberties. And the reason it's particularly debilitating with civil rights and civil liberties is because civil rights and civil liberties, uh, as the September 11th story indicates, is a story of moral progress. So anyone who wants to um, uh, say something different about how an achievement is a barrier uh, gets in a lot of trouble relatively quickly because it's being against moral progress. Right? It's not just... Uh, uh, a, a different interpretation of history. It's, it's, it's an opposition, it seems, um, to uh, a moral story itself, a, a story of moral achievement. Um, uh, okay, so how are civil rights, how does the story uh, uh, blind us to things? Right? Take a totally different example, right? um, or a number of them. Church-state separation. Right? There was a story about how we didn't protect this in schools and then we did. Or take sexual harassment laws, the gradual extension of um, equality principles uh, to women in the workplace. Or take something like affirmative action, right? the inclusion of new groups uh, into um, uh, 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 possibilities that they didn't have um, before. Um, what happens, and you don't have to argue that any of these things are wrong. Right? What you have to uh, look at is whether some of these triumphs might serve as barriers uh, to new developments in civil rights and civil liberties. Right? Um, and we tend to overlook these uh, in these particular uh, areas. So for example, if you have affirmative action, right, um, affirmative action in a lot of ways uh, is, is changing on the basis of demographics and multiracialism. Right? Uh, they're changing the way a lot of people think about affirmative action, and this is most evident in places like uh, uh, California. Um, to the extent you, you uh, enshrine something as a simple, in a story, as a, a, a case of simple moral progress, you don't allow for change. It institutionalizes a particular public policy at a particular time. Um, people tend to overlook, until recently, people overlooked a lot of the free speech consequences uh, to some of the more radically stated uh, 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 sexual harassment laws. Uh, and also, it turns out that something with church-state separation is a possible barrier uh, to a lot of urban blacks who tend to be in favor of school vouchers, right? But the moral story doesn't allow for the evolution of new, new pressures, new groups, new dynamics, um, all sorts of things that we mean by a living constitutionalism. Uh, so I guess I want to I end by saying, you know, or by asking, right, when we say we have a living constitution after the New Deal, does that mean that the constitution only lives in one direction? Right? I mean, could it be possible that a return to take something less, slightly less controversial, uh, federalism, right? Could it be possible, and, and I don't have any argument for this, but that the way the world is changing, that uh, a devolution of power, uh, a revived federalism might be more appropriate. right? Why can't we make living constitutionalist arguments for that? Why couldn't you make a living constitutionalist argument that, uh, not that affirmative action is you know, part of the original meaning or anything like that, or racial quotas, but why don't you say, well, it made sense, but it's, it's, uh, it makes no sense now because we have a living constitution that takes into account changing demographics. right? It seems to me that when you have this moral story, you don't allow the Constitution to live in new directions. It has become institutionalized. Um, and all I want to really claim is that civil rights and civil liberties um, are as rigid as any other institutionalized public policy. And if you are in favor of these policies, of course, you would defend these. Um, if you are critical of them, um, you should not be dissuaded by this moral story. Uh, you should look at the actual effects of these policies and see um, whether or not uh, they are actually conservative. Right? Um, they are supported by formalisms. They are supported by the state and all sorts of institutional things. Uh, and I, I don't think you need to be an originalist, as a lot of conservatives are, to, to, to think differently about these things. Uh, and um, I think a lot of the more interesting work now is studying the origins of various civil rights and civil liberties uh, policies from a historical perspective. Um, there have been a lot of work, particularly on affirmative action, often by liberal scholars, that talk about the creation of these policies within bureaucracies and things like that, rather than this constitutive story of this gradual triumph of equality. And this is just pure history. You know, uh, it is not normative uh, uh, argument. And I think to the extent we begin questioning this simple sort of story of moral progress and looking at the paths of development over the course of the 20th century, uh, again, I don't want to say there's any one conclusion that you get from this, but I think what you do get is, is you find the landscape is a lot more interesting uh, than you might otherwise uh, see if you just have a, this strong notion of the expansion of equality, uh, however true that might be in some, uh, in, in some senses. Um, so uh, I guess I will uh, end there.
3: That was an amazing evolutionary story you just gave us, and uh, I'd kind of like your comment on the brilliance of the legal mind. Um, Keep going. We have uh, 15 uh, minutes. These surprising turnarounds that uh, may not have been anticipated, I wonder how many of these the uh, some of the legal minds would have anticipated the consequences on down the line, like in the ancient theological prophets of the Old Testament. They would pick up trends and begin to perceive where they were going. Now, as I understand, that LaGuardia Act in 1932 was passed by a Republican Congress. And then came the New Deal, and it just carried on from there. And in the process, uh, you found the change from uh, the way we define a labor union, whether it be a state actor or a legislature and so forth, to what degree do you think the perceptive person on the Supreme Court would perceive what might be the consequences ahead of time?
2: I'll return the uh, the uh, praise by saying that's an excellent question. <laughs> uh, you know, um, a different, and it raises sort of. Um, I, I'm not sure whether I use this term, um, but uh, the term is unintended consequences. Um, and let me just say generally that analysts of public policy routinely look to unintended consequences um, of institutional change, right? What happens if you enact a particular law or rule and then it goes forward through time? <coughs> Uh, and people look at this in all sorts of uh, all sorts of areas of public policy. People very rarely look at this when it comes to civil rights and civil liberties, because public civil rights and civil people do not like to call that public policy. You know, they like to call it equality or justice or democracy, uh, and uh, uh, justice. Uh, equality and democracy, you know, do not have unintended consequences. They are perfected, or you, you either live up to them or you don't, right? Um, and I think there there are all sorts of unintended. All I'm asking, really, and this your question really uh, 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 puts it quite well. I mean, all I'm asking is that people look at civil rights and civil liberties. Uh, policies as having unintended consequences in the same way that anything else has unintended consequences, especially the longer it's there, right? So whatever conclusion you reach, you know, fine, right? Uh, but just that that general observation. Now, the, part of the question is, um, you know, to what extent did actual people predict the consequences of what they were uh, getting at? Um, you know. This is a really varied uh, thing, right? Uh, there are all, It runs the gamut. So if you have socialists, if you have someone like A. Philip Randolph, who is a believer in labor power and, and civil rights, uh, his view is the evolutionary view, right? It is that we will win labor power and then we will fight for the rights of black workers and they are part of the same thing. Um, so to a certain extent, I would think he would have anticipated that it worked uh, exactly as, as, as he uh, would have liked it, right? Uh, so I think there are a significant number of people that... There are other people who were really concerned with the rights of labor uh, and were either indifferent to blacks or completely racist uh, and they really didn't think about it at all because that was not what they were thinking about. Uh, there were other people who uh, were very pro-civil um, rights um, but then, uh, and pro-civil liberties and who were aghast at the, comp- at the developments that occurred later. So, for example, um, when it comes to affirmative action in the sense of, you know, not there are lots of definitions of affirmative action, but let's say veering towards quota, quota systems and, and preferences. Uh, you have people like... Um, Roger Baldwin, who is the founder and head of the ACLU, uh, and you have people like Bayard Rustin, who is the organizer of the March on Washington uh, movement. Uh, and these people, in their old age, are saying, this is terrible, you know. Uh, I, w- I was not for this, uh, you know. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, people look at them like, boy, are you out of it, you know. Uh, but they say, what they say is that I've been totally consistent since I organized the March on Washington, I've been consistent since I founded the ACLU, and it's you that's changed, right? Uh, but you know, they end up being dwarfed within their own—I uh, guess they would say their own side—or, you know, at some point, people end up end up being defined as conservatives uh, in some cases. Uh, but these people would never want to be defined as conservatives, and and I don't think they're properly defined as conservatives, you know. Um, they're they're not, you know. Um, so they saw things. They actually lived long enough to watch things unfold, and they were appalled by it. Um, so I, I don't think that there's any real. There's no one answer. Uh, I guess your your initial premise is really the the important thing is that things happen, and uh, and uh, some people. Uh, don't think about it, some people see it, some don't, but it's important to note that th- this process, in fact, occurs. That's, that's all, really, my modest uh, claim.
3: Uh, you opened your, your lecture with that interesting story about September 11th. Uh, what do you think the impact of September 11th and the governmental reaction to it has been in terms of this evolution of civil liberties and civil rights? <laughs> Do I have to answer that? <laughs> um,
2: you know, I, that's a really complicated question. <laughs> uh, look, I, I think in, in a sense this is an outside event Right, this is a radical disturbance uh, in 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 things, uh, and um, I'm generally uh, in favor of the developments uh, like the Patriot Act. Right, uh, I'm skeptical of expansions of it, and I'm a little worried about the implications of it if people uh, do not, uh, you know, exercise power responsibly. Uh, but it seems to me. Uh, that, um, you know, in, in a different circumstance and particularly when there's a high threat that, that civil liberties, um, uh, I wouldn't say, I, civil liberties has always been defined as incorporating what needs to be done in a particular situation. To the extent the risk is higher, I don't think it's a diminishment of civil liberties. I think that's part of the definition of what a civil liberty is. Now, uh, as far as in the history of the, the story, right, which is what you really uh, asked about, um, I have very mixed feelings about this, because um, I think, uh, and I had a uh, uh, debate with Chris Eisgruber about this, so I want to I agree with something he said during that debate. Uh, uh, you know, I think we're a lot better off um, uh, to have people, to have had a history in which there were excesses and people recognized those excesses. Uh, and, and, don't, and are very careful about abusing the power because of this narrative, right? So in that sense, I think it is important uh, that people have had that experience. Um, uh, I guess my only, you know, I'm gonna take the squishy position on this. I think, you know, uh, I'm happy to have people, uh, I, you could still follow what I say and believe in this progressive story, I just think you should not be transfixed by it, right? Uh, I've heard lots of people, mostly outside of uh, Princeton, you know, people at Princeton are actually fairly reasonable. Uh, and um, But people talk about this is a return to McCarthyism. Actually, that's what you hear. This is the Red Scare all over again. It's McCarthyism. And I think it is not, right? Well, let me let me finish this point first. <laughs> no is the answer, but, <laughs> uh, um, but I think to the extent you have a lot of people just saying this is red scare redux, it's McCarthyism redux, uh, I think that is the story run amok, right? Uh, and I think that it's it's pernicious and not only I think it's dangerous, right? It is dangerous to believe. Uh, in, in this story, so profoundly that the slightest effort to protect the country brings down this reign of calls of McCarthyism, you know, uh, or the Red Scare. I do not think we're anywhere near that situation. Um, uh, but if you want to say that you know we have to be especially careful and think about these things uh, in light of what we've learned from those things, um, uh, I'm fine with that, you know. And I won't answer the question.
1: Uh, it was a very interesting story, and um, I guess my, my question is from your point of view, the breakthroughs on civil rights and civil liberties, how today or what do you view today as the barriers that they've created that we should be aware of? Or I, I have a hard time in my own mind viewing these things as, as substantial barriers and the breakthroughs, that, the breakthroughs that have come. So what is it that I am to look for or in Supreme Court decisions to, to uh, be aware of?
2: Well, I, I listed some of the ones that, that immediately uh, uh, occurred to me. Um,
3: um,
2: I think, for example, there is a lot of, well, I'm a fairly secular person, right? But I... There is a lot of interesting, uh, there have been a lot of interesting initiatives involving faith-based efforts to help poor communities, uh, especially, uh, you know, Bush had tried to do this. There are all sorts of internal things like that um, that frustrated it. Um, but one of the main things that has frustrated uh, efforts to involve uh, churches uh, in anti-poverty and neighborhood programs has been a constitutional argument. Right, that relies on this sort of narrative. And by the way, uh, um, you know, again, a lot of these faith-based initiatives uh, are, you know, involve the urban poor, right? Uh, and uh, and I think uh, now I, I don't say any of these barriers are unbridgeable. You know, I'm not making a, a really strong argument that we're trapped permanently, um, but a very strong argument and a very influential argument stopping these programs that I think would be quite helpful, right, is this constitutional argument based on this narrative. So I think it is an obstacle, right, to not, it's not the solution to the urban problem or the solution to, uh, uh, you know, civil uh, you know, poverty or anything <coughs> like that, um, but I think uh, it, is, it is a notable barrier and I think um, it, that, that is uh, one area. Um, you know I, I I could talk about uh, you know racial preferences and something like that i I think that that is a very serious uh, uh, issue um, Of course, you know it mostly affects elite institutions, and maybe you could say that's not all that important um, but I think if you would uh, if you were to look at um, the actual history of the way affirmative action developed and people have written very good recent books on this. This is the new writing on affirmative action. Uh, it has very odd and obscure origins that people Give speeches, especially in universities, about how it was just a simple triumph of the idea of equality and inclusion. The diversity rationale being an, being a classic example. Uh, if you could, there have been two, several recent books on the way that the diversity rationale ended up getting these votes on the court uh, that it got, and it's a very odd story. Uh, it is hardly uh, a philosophical story. A lot of it is bureaucratic you know? I mean, how did Aleutian Islanders become included in affirmative action uh, statements? Um, how did, other than blacks, right? That in and of it itself is a remarkable thing. It used to be the justifications applied to black people, you know, the legacy of slavery and other things. But of course, now, you know, Mexican Americans or people from India or uh, you know, obviously, there's no legacy of slavery, so something else has to be uh, working there, uh, and I think that that is one area that is completely muddled, uh, in part based on this. Now, how big a social problem is that? I, I think it's wrong. You know, I think it's uh, there are a lot of problems with it. Uh, uh, you know, whether it's consequences on the ground for for uh, are as strong as the faith-based things, I'm not really.
3: What, like, what is that you to understand?
2: Uh, there is a book by uh, John Scretney called The Civil Rights, Civil Liberties Revolution, or The Civil Rights Revolution, uh, no, The Minority Rights Revolution. Um, and um, there's another, Hugh Davis Graham also has a, has a book uh, on civil rights generally that chart these processes. Uh, so Scretney, who's at UC San Diego, and Graham, who just died recently, um, those are very good books, and then there, there are two books on diversity. One is um, that the Yale Shuck. The, uh, the I forget what, what that is called. The diversity it's called the diversity something, uh, which is a very good uh, book on that. But the historians are Hugh Davis Graham and, and John David Scraton. I don't know Graham's politics. You know, he's a very eminent historian. Scretney I don't think, is conservative at all. Mm-hmm. You
3: know.
1: Just to follow up on uh, the discussion you're going into right now, 20 years ago I wrote an economics paper
2: right here, and it related, well, the title of it was Perpetuation of Past Discrimination Due to Union Seniority Systems. And I wondered what your thoughts were on the progress over the last 20 years. Uh, I did a statistical analysis, basically, out of the economics department, and it didn't get into philosophy and the, and the law and a lot of the structure, but... I'd like to know what your thoughts were in terms of you know whether it be at the constitutional, at the Supreme Court mechanism level, or through statute, or through the actions of the unions themselves, whether or not that, whether or not that uh, that uh, phenomenon persists. I'm not sure I can answer that question just as a factual matter. You know, uh, I I, do, I have not followed the. You know that used to be an extremely important thing. That there was even if there was not overt discrimination, the unions were set up in such a way uh, in which uh, um, you know they locked in uh, sort of the white workers that had been there for a long time. Um, uh, but I, I honestly have not followed it on through, so I don't know whether it continues to be an issue. I mean, I guess well. You know, let me, make, let me just use that as a launching point for a broader point, uh, since I can't, uh, since I can't uh, really um, answer that. Um, I'll, I'll say this. I mean, one thing that is of interest is that by the time um, uh, black people got these rights in the labor unions, right, and, and these things were applied to them, labor unions were less and less important as a, just as a percentage of the, you know, they're less important to the economy. Um, so there are people who argue, David Bernstein of George Mason University being one of them, um, that you know uh, uh, we could say that gradually black people got civil rights in labor unions but they got it at the very point where it didn't really matter as much anymore. So maybe if you just had not empowered labor unions to begin with, and he actually suggests that you know a large part of the black underclass is traceable to this. Right That the exclusion by labor unions they win access and they win access just for the moment it doesn 't matter anymore right now it matters for individual people who are you know, looking for jobs so i 'm just talking about the, the the big picture as far as percentage of people employed um, so i i, I don 't really know the answer. I mean my guess would be that it would be less, but maybe someone else in the audience at some point would know better than i i, 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 I haven 't followed it through really, and actually you know i 'm not really uh, I don't just focus on uh, labor unions. I guess that's part of a, a week, you know, I, I'm interested in the theory of, of development, and I've looked at labor unions for this, but I don't, the rest of my time, I don't spend a lot of time, you know, following things through or keeping up on, 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 on that aspect of it. Hi. Would another response to the question oh. over there about what, what barriers are out
1: there being the First Amendment being a barrier to
3: so we have a situation where the First Amendment basically permits the richest people to buy so much speech that they drown everybody
2: else out? Uh, well, people certainly uh, <laughs> uh, people certainly uh, do argue that, so that's the point, uh, the point taken.
4: I just had a comment, and I wanted to probe a little bit further into the question that Jeremy brought up, which was precisely what kind of barriers are imposed by this evolutionary story. And to pick on your example, pick up on your example of affirmative action, one of the unintended con- consequences, obviously, of the civil rights movement was affirmative action. But in the legal rationale of the most recent court decision, it picks up on something that is a new living tenant of the Constitution, perhaps one could say, that is the view of diversity as a value that the state is willing to impose discriminatory measures against certain students in a university in order to achieve that value. And in that sense, affirmative action, while an unintended consequence, isn't, hasn't posed a barrier, but has posed a different route. So if you could give maybe another example or pick up on that about something that's a barrier that is holding us back in new developments of civil and moral thought that's imposed by past breakthroughs. Uh,
2: I, I, you know, I mean, I could I could say a lot about that. I think maybe in the precept would be the time to do that. Uh, um, I, I, you know... I don't think uh, that uh, the diversity rationale has served diversity. So, I mean, that's an extended uh, argument. I mean, it's, it's certainly, uh, you know, led to uh, different, you know, people of different colors being more people of different colors. It's reduced the percentage of white students on campus, which is one of its stated goals. Um, they don't put it that way, but, um, and, uh, but, you know, I, there are arguments about intellectual diversity that, I, I actually, I don't think diversity has helped intellectual diversity at all. I don't mean at all. It has helped it in some areas, uh, but the, the connection between intellectual diversity and racial diversity uh, is not as strong as the court uh, seems to accept uh, that it is. Uh, I, I think that's pretty clear, and I think also, um, uh, in a way, uh, you know, a lot of uh, students um, in minority groups are often tutored when when they arrive in what they're supposed to think as members of these particular groups, uh, and to an extent, they're trained uh, in having their now they can reject it, and people do. You know, I'm not saying it's total uh, mind control or anything like that, um, but you know, it's not just that we select people of different races and then plop them on campus. I mean, they go to meetings in which, you know, they are told various things. Professors have a certain ideology about uh, what they're supposed to, what these people stand for, you know. They're symbols to a lot of professors uh, of something, right? And, uh, uh, and uh, you know, I think even the diversity within that group of opinion is sort of muted uh, by the mere acceptance, by the mere celebration of diversity. Uh, um, but this is an elaborate argument, you know, uh, and I'm not going to be able to do it any justice here and uh, uh, in this uh, short uh, time. And it's also a very controversial argument. Right, so. we have time
0: for one
3: more. I think one of the most interesting aspects
1: of today is the
3: discussion. Of The case of the homosexuals in in uh, San Francisco, both of them produ- produced violent dissents uh, on the basis. And in, in one case, the basis was well, was quotas are quotas, and that's all there is to it. And the other one is you have, as I think Scalia's that comment was, you have laid waste the concept of stare decisis. what I'm really wondering is. Is this argument really all about the story? Or is it really about significant differences in how people look at the Constitution as a document? Um,
2: I think it's about the story. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, look, um, you know, part of this is just that, I, I, uh, you know, just, intelli- just temperamentally, right, uh, um, there are a lot of people who write about and think about the way that different people interpret the document and different theories of interpretation. And I think that you could talk about these things uh, by focusing on different, let's say, different conceptions of equality, different conceptions of democracy. Uh, and in fact, constitutional theorists Tend to talk about it that way, right? Um, and uh, they would probably agree with you that they would they would want to say, look, why don't we talk about it that way? Okay. Um, this is partly just a matter of my temperament uh, and training. Is that um, I just didn't don't want to enter that particular debate, uh, and I think that they're. Uh, I mean, I enter it, you know, when I'm led into it, you know. But uh, um, and. Uh, but it just seemed to me that um, there, there, is, uh, there are developments that result from things that are sort of unintended and these odd sort of institutional dynamics uh, that have not been chronicled, in part because of the health of that debate, because it's so vigorous, because it's so widespread, uh, that it tends to uh, push people into thinking about civil rights and civil liberties from a principled perspective. I'm not saying there's anything particularly wrong with that, um, but I think it it has left the whole area that I found intriguing, sort of on the, what I think is unexamined, you know, and other people are starting, are doing a lot more about this as well. And um, it's really just the... Uh, I'm just kind of contrary you know if everyone else is doing that I want to do something different you know and uh, and uh, and I thought that this was kind of more of an open field uh, and there was a lot to say that hadn't been said uh, so I, I take your point uh, that uh, you could talk about it that way and no doubt in the precepts we will talk about it that way uh, and people like to talk about it that way. Um, but uh, this was my uh, brief uh, developmental, historical, uh, empirical uh, time, so I took advantage of it. Right.
0: Thank you again.